Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in the second half of the podcast, we're going to be talking about the economic crisis in Argentina or Maybe I should say the latest economic crisis in Argentina. But first, as always, we like to do something drawn from the news. In this case, uh, the data point is five. That's a reference to the big five publishers uh, in the United States. There are five major publishers of books that do the vast majority of the business in book sales in the United States. And two of those big five publishers are now trying to merge into a single company. Those Two publishers are Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster. That's now caught up in a legal battle to see if they're going to be allowed to merge. The Justice Department is suing to block a proposed acquisition of Simon & Schuster by Penguin Random House. The DOJ argues that it would give Penguin Random House outsized influence over what is published and how much authors are paid. Also, unfortunately, there's another news peg, uh, and that is the horrific attack on Salman Rushdie, the novelist in upstate New York this past week. Investigators describing the attack as an assassination attempt by an individual with strong indicators of ideological support for the Iranian regime. Among the images investigators found on the suspect's phone were photos of Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani, who was killed in a U.S. drone strike in 2020. To start with Rushdie, uh, that seems most pressing. He's in uh, recovery right now in the hospital. We we wish him a speedy recovery from the attack. Um, but it did dawn on me that his books have, have since the attack become sort of global bestsellers. That's true in the United States. That's true elsewhere uh, as well. And it got me wondering how that works, I guess, in a sort of industrial sense. I mean, how quickly can book publishers respond to a surge in interest like this, in this case, uh, as a result of this kind of terrorist attack? I mean, what kind of challenge does a surge like this pose for publishers? Or, or is it not really a challenge at all, Adam? Well, indeed, let's first of all, send our best wishes out to Rushdie for his recovery. Um, and um, small compensation that um, the books are now surging on the Amazon bestseller list, and not just in the US, but in parts of Europe as well. The short answer is that I think if the surge gets big, it will not be easy to meet demand because printing press capacity in the United States and Europe is quite limited. In the US in particular, there were major closures of national printing press houses in 2018 and downsizing across the board, which means that a large amount of commercial printing is now done in China. And that means that it's tied up in huge supply chain issues. There are problems all the way along the the line. Anyone who's attempted to publish a book in the last couple of years will have fallen foul of them. And that was true of um, shutdown as well. It was much slower to come out than we'd hoped. 
and um, we're not the only victims of this. Donald Trump, in fact, has been the latest. I mean, his um, Our Journey Together, the glossy um, photo book of his presidency, was held up for several months. Um, all sorts of problems. Couldn't get ink, couldn't get glue, couldn't get leather for the cover. One of the mind boggles. Can't get paper. Um, there was. Uh, oh, that's why I couldn't get my copy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you've, been, you've been waiting for this. Um, the good news is part of the problem is also there's been a surge in demand for books. Um, but in the background of all of this are the familiar supply chain issues. And if you remember back to 21, one of the big issues was wood um, and pulp uh, was part of that problem. Pulp, obviously the crucial ingredient for paper making, but it was being diverted to the production of cardboard and packaging, which uh, pay better than, than print. And um, as a result, many publishers, in fact, took to slimming down books. So the same book, but um, with more text crowded onto the page and thinner paper, um, so as to somehow manage to keep the flow of books continuing. So if this year there are a, a kind of an emergency series of issues of Rushdie's classics, then they may indeed appear in a kind of thinner format. So in a geopolitical context, this attack on Rushdie uh, seems to trace back to a fatwa that was issued by Iranian Ayatollah Khomeini some 30 years ago or so. That got me wondering, what has Iran's book publishing marketplace been like since the Islamic Revolution just generally? I mean, I've been to Iran. I can attest that there's a large demand for foreign literature even philosophy, uh, sociology. Uh, um, so, Adam, I mean, what do you know about how book publishers navigate the political terrain of, of dictatorship in a place like Iran? Well, as you pointed out to me, Cam, Iran has some of, if not perhaps, the world's largest bookstore, and it also Tehran also hosts a major international book fair, attended by over a thousand publishers and two million visitors. Um, some of the recent hits in Iran have included, you know well-known titles from, from the West. So Mary Trump's tell-all on her uncle Donald Trump was a bestseller in, in Iran, as was uh, Michelle Obama's memoir. So there is a considerable crossover, as you'd expect, to the you know sophisticated middle-class readership in Iran. It's a booming industry, in fact. Um, over the course of the period since the revolution, um, the number of publications in Iran has uh, increased by tenfold every year. So we're talking about an industry that publishes over 100,000 titles a year. By the mid-2010s, uh, about 20% of the titles were authored by women. So it's also an avenue for expression by women. Compared to the West, it seems like a reasonably open business, to be honest. Um, 100 houses, publishing houses are responsible for 75% of all books published in Iran, as opposed to the big five in the West. Of course, there's also very severe censorship. Uh, anyone who's remotely dissident um, is in danger. Uh, bloggers, famously, but also anyone uh, daring to publish a book. Um, anything that's likely to fall found of the censors has to be published outside Iran in Farsi, whether it's in London or one of the emirates that sponsors anti-Iran regime uh, groups. But even those inside face pretty serious difficulties. So all of the supply chain issues that we were just talking about that confront Western publishers are compounded in the Iranian case. Do you happen to know whether your books have been published in Iran, Adam? I believe there is a pirate edition of at least one of them. Yeah, uh, okay. there's quite a lot of that. And you know, you don't. Frankly, I don't take. I don't take great exception to this. Mm -hmm. But I believe yes that there is a. I think there's a Farsi edition, Major of Wages of Destruction. Okay. I won't actively recommend it if it's pirated, but I do have relatives who, who may be interested, or maybe they already have one copy. But uh, in any case, to move on to the big five publishers that I mentioned, and specifically those two that are trying to merge, Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, yeah, they're currently facing legal proceedings. Uh, the government is 
claiming that this may lead to a monopoly consolidation of their businesses. Um, that verdict is still pending, but how would that consolidation between these companies affect authors, let's say, and then readers? Well, I guess in the interests of full disclosure, I should say that I've done four books with Penguin Random House, and I'm represented by one of the agents who's given evidence at the trial, um, the Wiley agency, Andrew Wiley. And the house line, as it were, uh, our house line apparently, is that uh, Wiley is not concerned about the merger. He thinks that it'll be good for his clients, including me, I guess, and that uh, the best advances he's negotiated have been with the big five. He doesn't believe in an open model of competition with options. The It's worth saying that the entire substance of the trial, it's rather crazy, is that the Department of Justice is claiming that the merger will be bad, not if you like, for general for writers in general or for readers in general, but particularly for best-selling authors. So it'll be bad for authors that command advances over $250,000. And Wiley, that represents uh, many clients in that range, seems quite sanguine about it. I have to say my economist brain tells me to be a little bit suspicious here. I mean, I have I have absolute confidence in in the Wiley agency, and I'm sure they will get us very good deals. But as a general proposition, uh, the idea of merging the number one and number four firms to create a conglomerate that controls about 50% of the market does not look like the sort of arrangement which would be conducive to competition. All told, the big five would make up 90% of the anticipated top-selling book market. Um, So these books which command advances over 250,000. I think the most convincing argument I've heard for the takeover is, after all, that that really Penguin is not competing um, really with other publishing houses, though, of course, it does do that. But really, the big whale that they're dealing with is Amazon. And Amazon controls 50% of the print book market, at least 75% of ebook sales. And so the aim of the game for Penguin Random House is to get to sufficient scale so that it can bargain face-to-face with Amazon. And that's, as it were, what's really at stake here. I mean, it's worth saying that insofar as it's addressed to those authors fortunate enough to command these kind of advances, it's entirely irrelevant to the vast majority of people who are self-described as full-time authors. So the Authors Guild um, of the US, which represents writers in general, thinks that on average, the median income of full-time authors is about $20,000 in the US. The Australian Society of Authors has reported figures as low as 15,000. So the vast majority of people who are in the business of creative writing in all its different forms are not ever going to combine the kind of advances that this kind of deal and this kind of politicking um, is really about. So in a sense, you've got the Stephen Kings of this world and the highly paid authors. You've got this group of five publishing houses and you've got Amazon. And it's between those three that, as it were, this is being duped out. I mean, some of the testimony in the trial is mind-boggling and and does, in fact, confirm my experience of dealing with these kind of publishers and and the sort of deal-making, which is that one of the justifications for the scale of the big five is that they're basically engaged in an entirely random exercise by which the CEOs of the big houses basically say they have virtually no chance of predicting what's going to be a bestseller and what not. So as to be able, therefore, to offer anyone a substantial advance, they need to have deep pockets because otherwise they just couldn't do it. I mean, the CEO of, of Random House, Marcus Doley, literally said, success is random, bestsellers are random. That's why we're the Random House. I mean, and, and I have to say, as an author, this appears to be the model. It's really staggering. 
And um, compared to other, you might say, more targeted forms of selling content, for instance, in the one that I'm most directly involved in right now, which is the sort of Twitter-driven and Twitter-linked newsletter uh, business, um, it's just incomprehensible how incohate and, and incoherent the book marketing process appears to be. So down the line, it's not obvious to me, you know, what really the, you know, this future of, of, of this kind of uh, big bucks uh, book publishing is really going to be because it's, 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 uh, you know, if, if, if the people who run the show really take the view that it's completely random, um, it's a little bit uh, disillusioning, to be honest. I, I need to clarify here. You're saying, or he is saying, that it's random relative to the content of the book or even random relative to their own marketing efforts. I mean, yes. They, they, they just simply cannot... No, it's, it's irrelevant what they do. Yes, the CEO Simon Schuster said that gloating over a bestseller is like taking credit for the weather. Yeah, that is kind of dizzying. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, obviously all of this publishing now is taking place in the context of a new digital era of entertainment. And I wonder whether that's changed the market for books in any kind of measurable way. Or, or have they, I don't know, reduced attention spans, say produce shorter books in general any kind of data on that adam well you know that's true for music right that the online music streaming has driven the music industry to look for songs which are shorter and have more effective hooks because no one's going to wait for like you know the 90 second intro that you might once have had in some classic rock track um with books i think it's more complicated but what we are seeing is overwhelming evidence from the current cohort of teenagers of a really dramatic shift in media engagement. So a huge increase in their use of social media, texting, gaming, um, like, you know, since the early 2000s, really, um, from a few hours a day to six hours a day in the case of young men in, you know, by the, the end of the 2010s. So really a dramatic shift. And for that cohort, we are also seeing a really radical reduction in their reading habits. So in the early 1990s, 33% of 10th graders in the US said they read a newspaper almost every day. That's one in three. Uh, by 2016, the number was only 2%. In the late 1970s, 60% of 12th graders in the US said they read a book or a magazine almost every day. By 2016, only 16% did. And this is despite the fact that we could, you know, you could be talking about digital content. It's just not happening. People are in the world of, of TikTok, or used to be once upon a time, they're in the world of Facebook or Twitter. Um, and they are not engaging in long-form reading, even in the sense of um, reading um, articles in newspapers or magazines. So that's a really dramatic shift. Yeah, I guess finally, I wanted to ask about public libraries. So libraries seem like, okay, they're publicly funded institutions that exist to sort of share books among the population. What do book publishers make of public libraries? It's very interesting, this. It turns out there's a legal principle called the first sale doctrine that enables anyone who's bought the physical embodiment of IP, whether it's text or a sound recording, to lend, sell, or otherwise pass on the physical object which embodies that IP. So it's something you kind of take for granted, right? That once you own a book, you can sell it secondhand uh, or you can lend it to someone. Um, but it does raise quite fundamental legal principles. The book contains IP, which in a sense, the person who wrote the book controls. But in a ruling by the Supreme Court in 1908, which was then confirmed by the Copyright Act, this first sale principle was introduced, which means that bookstores can decide what price they charge for books in general. 
authors aren't able to, as it were, set minimum um, IP prices. And libraries can function freely. And on that basis, publishers, in fact, work very closely with the library system in a totally cooperative way around books, um, classic books. Part of this is simply that libraries are big customers. And if the aim of the game is to cover your overheads with publishing, there are 117,000 libraries in the United States. So if you manage to sell a book to just 10% of them, you're already in a bestseller territory, right? So it's a, it's a huge market. In fact, uh, the publishers show up at library shows and fairs. They're very supportive of bulk buying by libraries. It is indeed just basically free advertising for them. It gets people into contact with books and, and people buy more as a result. Where the issue has arisen, and it's very interesting, is in the case of digital content, because digital content is not covered by the first sale doctrine. So the problem here is, of course, that the digital content, potentially at least, is infinitely reproducible. And so what exactly is it you, that you have bought? What is the physical embodiment of the IP that you've bought in the case of digital uh, content? And so here, there is, in fact, rather tense negotiation between the big library systems um, in the United States and the digital publishers. Um, one way of dealing with this is that you have a third-party vendor that buys a lot of digital rights and then libraries take out a subscription with them. This is the model that we're also familiar with from the academic side. Um, overall, what this means is that digital book subscriptions are more expensive for libraries than buying the book and more expensive than for ordinary folks buying the digital subscription. And then what the publishers tend to do is put a variety of limitations on, for instance, the number of times a digital book can be lent out or how long the digital license that the library holds will run for, forcing the library to renew or pay again after a period of time. So in all of these ways, this has become quite tense. And this whole issue of negotiating access for public libraries to digital rights is going to be a big and contentious one going forward, as it is for academic libraries as well, because the licensing fees, the access fees charged for extremely expensive um, journals in the STEM, in, in science, uh, technology, engineering and math, has been crippling library budgets um, uh, in, in recent decades. Well, I like trying to imagine <laughs> these libraries playing legal hardball. It, it sort of doesn't conform with my memory of kind of my mousy high school librarian, Mr. Singer. But we got to leave it there uh, for now. But we will be back in a second to talk about Argentina. Hi, and welcome back. The next Data point is 90. That's 90%. That is the expected annual inflation rate that Argentina is facing right now that obviously far surpasses the inflation problem in the United States and Europe. Argentina has been battling high inflation for years, but in the past months, the prices of food have soared, making it difficult for many of the families that have come here to make and meet the government of Alberto. So yeah, Argentina is facing a pretty dire economic crisis. It's not the first though. It sort of seems to be a recurring theme, at least since the 2001 default. Since then, uh, Argentina has repeatedly struggled with its international creditors. And I guess I wanted to start, Adam, by asking whether it's fair to say that Argentina is simply one of the world's most underperforming countries. Yeah, I mean, Argentina is really a country that was sort of cursed by its own promise. 
Argentina in 1913 was the 10th richest country in the world. Uh, and riches and Argentine was once actually an expression. Even the country's name right, alludes to wealth. Argentum um, is silver in Latin. And not for nothing, it still today has a larger population than either Canada or Australia. And that population reflects successive waves of migrants to Argentina, notably Brits, Germans, um, Italians. But yes, over the course of the 20th century and into the 21st century, its performance has been really quite deeply disappointing, I think one has to say. I mean, it's now, in terms of nominal GDP, so not, afflet, not adjusted for purchasing power parity, it's 89th in the world. In terms of purchasing power parity, which is perhaps fairer, it's 65th in the world. So it's really a, it's a terrible slide. The economist Simon Kuznets, who's widely considered to be one of the fathers of modern growth theory, said that there are four kinds of countries in the world. There are developed countries, there are underdeveloped countries, there are Japan, which is a freaky country of rapid growth, and there's Argentina. Um, it's a very mixed bag. If you ever visit, you'll see. I mean, it, you know, on the one hand, you have the legacy of wealth that you see in you know the spectacular capital Buenos Aires, which is still feels like a very rich city indeed. But on the other hand, um, as you go out to the outskirts, you see signs of real poverty, and in, in, and in the countryside and the provinces, all the more so. Um, opinions differ really as to where things went wrong. It could have been the interwar crisis. The 20s and 30s were really bad for agricultural producers around the world. It could have been Peronism, which was the sort of laborist, corporatist, interventionist, nationalist, state-driven economic model that came to the fore in the 40s and 50s. And Peronists, it should be said, have won 10 out of the 13 elections in Argentina that they've been allowed to contest. So there, if you like, if there is a hegemonic political force in Argentina, it's Peronism. And then the left tends to blame the right-wing military dictatorships of the 70s and 80s that opened Argentina up to foreign capital, used their repressive powers to do that, launched Argentina into the debt crisis of the 1980s. And from there, it's really just tumbled forward decade after decade to hyperinflation at the end of the 80s, to a currency peg with the dollar in the 1990s, to the huge, I mean, truly Great Depression-style financial crisis of 2001, to a standoff with global bond markets, to reopening, to another debt crisis um, in 2018, 2019, to COVID, and then now, you know, the renegotiation of debts with both with private creditors and the IMF, which has been the subject of the last couple of years, and the current inflation crisis, which is extremely acute. The raw materials, I mean, this is the thing with raw materials. I mean, on the one hand, they're a source of great wealth for the Argentinian elite, which the landowning minority that controls the resource flow out of right now, it's soya, which is the soybeans, which are the great gold mine. Um, but there's also the issue of the resource curse, right? If you have a sector like that, it squeezes everything else out. And so a lot of Peronist policy has been about trying to actually construct a more diversified, ultimately an industrial economy or, or one based on modern services to go along with their resource wealth. And so what has exactly triggered this latest bout of very high inflation in Argentina? I mean, they're, of course, dealing with the same international factors as the rest of the world. Obviously, the high energy prices, these supply chain problems that we've talked about. But how is Argentina's domestic economy fed the fire right now? Yes, I think the best way perhaps to think about this is that Argentina suffers the same external energy shock that has hit the entire world but has a highly sensitive and unstable national economy that receives this shock, amplifies it, and turns it into the current inflationary scare that we're seeing in Argentina. Um, part of the problem is that 
Argentina can't borrow, not, not at all abroad anymore, and uh, with difficulty even at home. And so they resort to the printing press to finance government spending, not on a gigantic scale, but enough to uh, destabilize the price level. Part of the reason why government spending is, runs far ahead of, of tax revenues is that Argentina is one of the countries in the world with very, very large energy price subsidies. So as the global price of energy goes up, the burden on the fiscal apparatus of Argentina rises. They currently spend about 2% of GDP on subsidies for domestic consumption of oil and gas, which of course makes the entire problem worse because you're enabling people to buy oil and gas at much lower prices. When the then economics minister, Martin Guzman, urged strongly by the IMF, made a push to abolish those and wind those back and to focus those subsidies on low-income households, he ran into the determined opposition within the government of the left wing of the Peronist movement, which is which is uh, headed by uh, Christina Kirchner, the, the former president, um, and uh, was forced to resign in early July. And when he did, when Guzman resigned, literally over the following weekend, prices surged by 20%. So what that tells you is, as it were, there's a struggle for resources and funding going on, stimulated by an outside shock. The third factor is that the Argentinian society and the economy reacts with incredible nervousness to these kind of shocks. So literally over a weekend, everyone just decided, OK, next week there's going to be a freak out, so I should freak out first. So I'm going to stick all my prices up by 20%. And then the knock-on effect from that is that the labor movement, which is quite strong in Argentina, then demands compensation. So you actually get a classic wage price spiral with wage demands running ahead of prices. And the entire system, therefore, has this sort of labile quality if you, you talk to Argentinians about what the price of anything is on any given day, they're very uncertain about it. And that reflects the fact that market making price standardization in the Argentinian economy increasingly doesn't function. Interesting. So people are just primed to uh, think in these inflationary ways. Yeah. And so Argentinians can tolerate higher levels of inflation than most other societies because everyone plays the game. Um, you know, 20 to 30 percent inflation is not considered really, you know, which in which in Europe or the United States will be considered a crisis um, is, is actually considered a quite modest and manageable level of inflation. So as in other places that have very high inflation, Argentina now has a thriving black market in U.S. dollars, uh, which uh, everyone wants to get their hands on because it represents a more stable currency. But that got me wondering, how does this kind of black market work, Adam? Well, you, the first question, to, I think, to answer is how you get a black market at all in the first place. And you, you do because there's an official price, um, which is a roughly a, right now about 135 to 140 pesos per dollar, which is not a lot of pesos for your dollars. That price is you know, very disadvantageous to people wanting to sell dollars, very advantageous for people who want to buy dollars. And so the amount of dollars you can buy at that price is quite restricted, right? In $200 a month is how many, how many uh, Argentinians can buy at that price. Because the market would really want to price, you know, on a bad day right now, the peso has gone as low as 330 pesos to the dollar. On a more average day, it's around about 290. So that's how many you should be bidding. And as soon as that kind of gap opens up between what the market would actually offer you in terms of pesos for dollars and what the official price is, you get dealers who will sit in between. In an Argentina, because this is such a persistent state of affairs, Argentina has very rarely had a single exchange rate. It normally operates with these multiple exchange rates. There is a fairly well-established structure of more or less formal dealing in currency. 
And uh, this operates on the street level through a whole variety of hustlers that just, uh, you know, uh, to whisper to you, shout, sing to you on the street corner, cambio, 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 do you want to change? You go to a discreet place uh, off the sidewalk and you can there exchange. You can either buy dollars, you know, around about 300 pesos per dollar, which is what Argentinians do when they want to save. And you can sell, if you're a tourist, dollars at, at that kind of highly advantageous rate. And those street level operatives, then much like if you like in sophisticated drug dealing, um, pile their earnings and, 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 and close their accounts out at the end of every day with wholesalers. And it's wholesalers who entertain the relationship with the local police authorities to ensure that this trade can go on. And the Argentinians are thought to have about 200 billion in US banknotes in private holdings, in safe deposit boxes under the bed. That's about 10% of all of the dollars in the world. So to turn to Argentina's government, it does have a long track record, as you were describing, of unsustainable finances. And so that got me wondering, why do international investors keep backing the country's debt in one form or another? I mean, they're just always thinking that this time may be different. Yeah, that's the thing, I think. I mean, because after all, you've got to choose between hypotheses. Um, certainly assuming everything f will forever remain the same is not a viable investment proposition either, right? So each time you come up with a specific hypothesis as to why it would be a good idea to lend the Argentinians money at this moment. So between 2016 and 2019, really, investors did to a degree lose their heads. But I mean, the IMF did too. I mean, the IMF put more money into Argentina than it's ever put into any other country. The idea was, I think, that if you did so, you could maybe keep the Peronists out of power. Um, and it didn't work and it blew up in their faces and the Peronists have come back strong. Um, this time round, I mean, in the current situation in 2022, uh, Argentina's cut out of any um, private borrowing, certainly. Its only access to foreign funding is essentially through multinational development banks. And it's maxed out, absolutely maxed out. It's standing with the IMF. Yeah, I guess finally, though, I want to ask about psychotherapy. So I know that psychotherapy is more popular in Argentina than, than almost anywhere else in the world. I just kind of remember that anecdotally when I've been reading about Argentina previously. So is there any data in general on the interaction of inflation of this kind and, and therapy in general? I don't know. Anything on this general subject that you know about, Adam? Yeah, I mean, it's not a, it's not a myth. So uh, according to the WHO, um, Argentina has... Um, 222 psychologists per 100,000 residents um, of the latest count. That's up from 145 per 100,000 people in 2008. And at the moment that Argentina had 222, France had 49 and there were 30 in the United States. So seven times more therapists per person in Argentina than in the US, seven times more. It's a, it's a long tradition that goes back to the early 20th century. It's easy to qualify as a therapist in, in Argentina. Many, the vast majority of practitioners don't have postgraduate degrees. So it's something you can go on to do straight out of undergraduate. And there's definitely a link between economic stress and mental health. Uh, these are very well attested in many countries. And it goes, you know, you could say it's, it suffuses an entire society in the Argentinian case. I mean, one way to live with crisis is, after all, to deny it. And the Argentinian government did this to a considerable extent. You know, in the 2000s, it became notorious for manipulating official statistics. I mean, it, it basically published data that said it had a, you know, uh, uh, um, a lower than 10% unemployment rate and manipulated the cost of living index. So as to, so as, to, as it were, convince everyone. They even at one point extended the license of the of McDonald's franchise in Argentina only on the condition that they 
underpriced the Big Mac so as to have a more favorable rating in the famous economist Big Mac meals index. I mean, really, real denial. I mean, in the full, full blown sense, in a, in a less comical and more serious way, um, especially in the current crisis in the last couple of years, there is really very significant evidence of widespread depression, especially amongst young people in Argentina about the economic outlook for their country. There's a distinct sense, I think, that this time around, things are different and in a worse and bad way. In the meantime, if you've got to pay a therapist, how do you do it? Well, one thing about paying therapists in Argentina is they're abundant, so they're cheap. You know, sessions run to as little as $15 an hour. And if you're dealing with a higher end practitioner, then, of course, you pay in dollars. And that um, stabilizes the entire transaction. Uh, I mean, this sounds stressful for the therapists themselves. Uh, I hope they have good therapists of their own out there because it sounds like a challenging situation. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Thank you.